You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Casey Costello has been the spokesperson for Hobson's Pledge, a former ACT candidate and a board member of the New Conservatives. But now she has announced she is standing for New Zealand first in this election. She's on the line now. Welcome to The Crunch, Casey. Thank you very much. You had a little chat with Rodney the other day, and um, I just wanted to explore a few other angles um, about your why you've decided to become a candidate for New Zealand First and uh, to look at some of the media coverage of you um, joining New Zealand First for this election campaign. But before I want to start, I, I read uh, an article that you wrote in 2017 which you titled, written by a New Zealander of Maori ancestry, a winner in life and in business, and a true believer in truth and justice, Casey Costello. And uh, there's something I didn't know about you, um, uh, despite being a subscriber and a follower of Hobson's Pledge for a number of years, uh, that you are actually of Maori ancestry. Are you the right kind of Maori? I think if you ask, Willie Jackson, I wouldn't be. I'd be a, I'd be classified as a useless Māori. But um, yeah, I, and and I think that's the part now. We've got down to the point. It's not about your ancestry or your your culture or your heritage or tereo or it's it's whether you agree, agree with the political construct. So, so it's the right political tribe, really, rather than any iwi or hapu that you belong to. Yeah. And, and I think that's evident by the fact that, you know, Māori are a hapu iwi-centric um, people. We, that's that's how we identify. That's how we connect. Um, whānau, hapu, iwi is, and yet the government, current government is so determined to centralise and and take away that identity. How, I don't know how they argue that they are representing Māori when everything they're doing is contrary to, to um Māori culture. I was, um, I've got a friend who's a councillor in a council, uh, a district council in the North Island, and uh, he was talking to me about how uh, co-governance with regards to three or four or five or nine waters or whatever they're calling it now means for that council. He said there's something like 17 iwi and 57 hapu and somehow they have to incorporate in this council all of those voices before they can even start to engage with everybody else. And he said it's just grinding the council processes to a halt. And he said when this water thing comes in, it's going to make it even worse. Are we heading down the wrong path here? Absolutely. In in 100 miles an hour. At, at breakneck speed, and and we just we've just forgotten about outcomes. We we we're not even considering what's the best outcome, what's going to make things more efficient. We're so focused on this idea of representation, and and I think people aren't understanding that co-governance. They it, it's kind of pictured as this kumbaya holding hands. We're all going to sit around the table and agree with each other environment, but how is that? fundamentally possible when half the people at the table have no democratic accountability to anybody. Māori don't, these representatives aren't being elected by Māori, they're being appointed. 
And we're just going to end up with whoever's got the loudest voice sitting around the table. And, and those who have good things to say won't ever be heard because there's no democratic process for them to be heard. But worst of all, there's no framework under which they can be held accountable and kicked out if they fail to deliver. There's none. Well, you know, it, it's, we've seen this happen everywhere around the world that has engaged in ethno-separatism. And that's really the only word that we can really call it. We're separating society and preferring uh, one race over another. And nowhere in the world has that ever ended well. It always ends in tears. Exactly. There's nowhere in the world that you can show that it has worked. I mean, even um, um, uh, Obama made a speech about the danger of tribalism as a form of government. I mean, it's it's everywhere has been criticised as ineffective, and and this and and to suggest that just because I claim Māori ancestry that I'm beyond reproach and I can never do anything wrong and I will always act in the best interests of my people is just is just so flawed. And the danger, the danger of our to our democracy, first and foremost, it cannot be overstated. This is the most dangerous path we can go on. And and the biggest losers, as Winston said on Sunday, the biggest losers will be Māori. The most in need, the most vulnerable Māori will be the ones that all of these who claim to represent Māori, they will stand on the backs of them to keep them down in order to maintain their relevance and authority where they don't deserve it. Well, just touching on one of your comments there about this hand-wringing that goes on, we're seeing with the Kerry Allen debacle, the, the metaphoric and actual uh, car crash of her career. And there's an article in Stuff uh, on Tuesday morning that, uh, that said uh, that, just one moment, here it is, my message to Maori, we're allowed to be collectively and individually imperfect, and it's talking about how you know poor Kerry Allen? Uh, the problem is, is she's a, a Wahini Maori, and and just basically excuse making. And there seems to be this uh, willingness in the media and in commentary uh, amongst politicians as well to demean Maori and create a victim mentality, presumably so they can fix something, but. They're, they're looking at Kerry Allen's appalling behaviour, her drunkenness, her uh, aggression, uh, everything that's associated with her, and then saying, oh, she's a poor, hard done by uh, Wahini Maori, and if you speak up against it, then you're a racist. And and they they tried that argument with um, the Minister of Local Government, Anaya Mahuta, when she was being you know attacked for appalling policy, appalling legislation. Mm. And she she claimed a victim narrative on the basis that, you know, these attacks have been racist. It, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with race. It would have been whoever, whatever minister held that portfolio who produced that piece of legislation should be vilified for it. And and if we want to be taken seriously and 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 being given credit and, and being accepted as an equal in this world, then you have to take the good with the bad. You can't take all the spoils and none of the cost, and and that's you know if you want to if you want to seat at the table, then you put your big boy pants on and you carry on with your job. 
But isn't the key to having a seat at the table is putting up an idea, putting yourself out there, and then getting elected? Mm-hmm. But there seems to be this uh, attitude that Maori don't need to be elected to anything, uh, that they have this inherent right that's not even in the Treaty of Waitangi. And at the same time, we've got the rest of society demeaning Maori and disabling them by using demeaning tones and saying, well, you know, they're vulnerable, they're this, they're that, and everything else. When in reality, in New Zealand, we have uh, an equality, supposedly an equality uh, of opportunity, but not necessarily an equality of outcome, which you can never have anyway. And and that's exactly right. That this this argument that I've had since I you know first started challenging this issue was the narrative is that being Maori says you're predisposed to failure. I mean, how, what an appalling message to send to our young people that we expect less of you. That we 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 know that you're going to achieve less, so we're going to lower the standards and change the expectations. One of the most appalling narratives I, I listened to was when um, the, they were debating in the House the um, Canterbury Regional Council Naitahu Representation Bill, which was our first step to destroying our democracy, unelected representation forever on the Canterbury Regional Council. And I listened to the debate on the third reading, and it was Māori MP after Māori MP after Māori MP um, campaigning for and supporting the legislation on the narrative that democracy had failed Māori. He was successful individual Māori MPs. In Parliament. In Parliament, where 26% of the MPs are Māori currently, and they're claiming that democracy has failed Māori. My argument is that Māori have failed Māori. The democratically elected MPs have failed Māori. By, by contributing to this narrative. And they had the luxury of blaming everyone else for their failures by saying it's the system, it's this. So they don't have to actually produce any positive outcomes because no matter how badly they do, they can continue to blame a system. Is this what's driving you to join New Zealand First and stand for Parliament to so that you can actually challenge that narrative directly to those disabling Maori elite that are currently yeah. in the house? Absolutely. I, I mean, I've, I've spent so many years when I was in the police association and and through Hobson's Pledge and all of these organisations where I've tried to affect change by lobbying for logic and reason. Mm. And and I, I've, I've just reached the point where, you know, you've, you've got to put your money where your mouth is and, and stand for it. And one of the things I've admired the most about Winston is that he has never once played this card of I'm Māori, therefore I speak for all Māori. He has always said he speaks for New Zealanders mm. and demands better outcomes for New Zealanders. And that's that's what we need more than anything else. And you know, 30 years in politics, that you've got to give him some credit when all of these, you know, run out of fuel in the tank stuff that's going on. 30 years and he's still up for the fight. And, yeah. and, it's and more than 30 years. I can remember him standing in my parents' uh, lounge when I was just a nipper and I'm 50, <laughs> 54 now. So it does, it's more like 40 years or more. Yeah. 
And, and that's the point. I suppose it's 30 years of New Zealand first. And yeah. un, unwaveringly, um, that's what, what he stood for. And, and you know, this, this, the conference on the weekend, one of the things that connected with the, me the most was the number of Māori who I felt like I'd come home. The number right. of Māori who were sitting there agreeing and going, yeah, this is not fair. This is not right. They don't speak for me. This isn't right. I'm not a victim. All of those sort of things that I've been saying, and and um, yeah, to me it just energised me to that this is this is where I belong. You, now you've belonged to and, and held positions, senior positions in other political parties, haven't you? Um, yeah, so I did. I did some work with New Conservatives um, as a um, sort of a um, backroom sort of admin person and. Yeah. Um, I once did stand for ACT um, in 2011 because my brother, who was very political at the time, told me I had to put my name down on a list. So um, I was the candidate for Mangere. I think I got about 80 votes, but I don't think I actually drove into Mangere during that campaign. But it's fair to, is it fair to say that you were politically homeless until recent, recently? Very much so. And I'd never, I'd never sought being a candidate. I'd never considered being a candidate. Um, and the more, it, it was actually a, a press release that Winston put out earlier in the year when he sort of said Winston's back, and um, and that that was to me that yeah, I've got to listen to this, and and I have listened, and I've you know read, and I've watched. It, there was one instance. Um, and this is going back when National was in power and um, New Zealand First offered 12 votes to National to get RMA reform. And at the time we were campaigning against National, well, Hobson's Pledge were campaigning against National to stop their race-based policies. And New Zealand First offered 12 votes to National to get genuine RMA reform on the basis that race was removed out of the, um, the legislation or the amendments and National turned it down and gave New Zealand EWI participation agreements, and anybody who's done any work with resource management knows what a quagmire of chaos that was. And you know, National and, and you know, New Zealand First showed that they were prepared for good outcomes to do whatever it needed, partner with whoever to get proper solutions. And to me, that was a real credit. And, um, you know, they... they They've, I think they've tested that they have really honest credentials on these issues. That was uh, under John Key's government. I, I knew the chief whip at the time, and he said to me at lunch the, the other day that that was one of the best times he had dealt with Winston Peters was during that RMA reform. He was just appalled that John Key didn't take, take up that offer. Mm. And then if you look at John Key signing away uh, the UNDRIP, report uh, and bringing that into society that is that is the the opening of the door that has led to this co-governance and the heroic rewriting of the treaty and assumptions that queen victoria you know empress of india the uh, the ruler of the largest empire in the world somehow signed a co-governance agreement with a whole bunch of disparate tribes that hated each other and were warring with each other that didn't even have the wheel or ability to boil water or 
things like that on an equal footing with someone so powerful as that. It's, it's farcical to even when you when you say it out loud like that, but bake and break it down into the most basic elements. It seems farcical that we've got political parties and elites in our society that are promulgating this idea of this partnership of equality when it wasn't like that at all. And and we're now harping back to wishing for the days when they just wanted equality because now we're we're having members of the press, um, MPs saying that actually it was Article 3 promised equity. We've we've now moved even further. We're now supposed to be delivering equitable outcomes. I mean, just the distortion. And and what's lost in all this is we have a really impressive history. Mm -hmm. Um, Sraparana Nata talked about how what an amazing, amazing document the treaty was. How we're one people. And how, you know, how we were so lucky and nowhere in the world did he believe a native people had been treated so well. And that's nearly 100 years ago, Sraparananata was saying that. And now we've, we're, we're looking back on our history like it's something to be ashamed of and it's something hideous. Of course, not everything went perfectly, but it was something that helped us form a nation. And, mm. and that nation's been formed as a result of that treaty. And going back to what, who said what and when and what was intended and what was meant is irrelevant to who we are as a nation now. And trying to wind back the clock, all we're doing is just losing everybody's opportunity to succeed because we're just turning ourselves in knots. Well, News Hub described you as uh, the spokesperson for a fringe organised or lobby group, a fringe lobby group. Hobson's Pledge was a fringe lobby group. And the things that we've been talking about now go right back to the foundation of New Zealand as a country. How, how many people are members of or, or, or subscribe to Hobson's Pledge in terms of, just to um, give it a size? So. The, the list currently is about 160,000 so of uh, on, our, on our supporter list. So well, That's um, enough to elect a political party to parliament. Yep. That's enough yep. votes to get you over 5%. It's hardly fringe. Exactly. That's what I would have thought, but. And I'll, I'll tell you a background story. When we first formed Hobson's Pledge and we sent out a, um, and this is back in 2016, we sent out a press release and Don Brash and I were the spokespeople, but the first press release we sent out to all the media outlets was um, only had my contact details, only had my um, phone number, my name. Don wasn't mentioned in it at all. Yeah. And not one media contacted me but several media outlets um, tracked down every trustee that was named on our website that was male and not Māori. So they went after everybody that was, so I was totally ignored. And basically I've been ignored on the basis that you can't argue with me, it's hard to vilify me, although they, they do try. But that, that was the, the, the angle that they took right from when we 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 set up was that we were going to destroy the argument of arguing for equality before the law and make it racist and make it and and John Key was the first one to condemn us you know John Key was the first one that kind of he was prime minister at the time came out and and mocked Don and said oh you know we've moved past this as a country um that that was John Key's comment towards 
demanding equality before the law. And as you say, that was the government that signed up to UNDRIP. That was the government that gave us the Marine and Coastal Area Act. Um, that was the government that first started the water discussions with the Iwi Chairs Forum. You know, this is this is the stuff that, um, you know, and now every single centimetre of our coastline is under some sort of claim under the Marine and Coastal Area Act. So, yeah, and, and, and <laughs> we now quite moved up. Now we've got three waters, and what a lot of people don't understand too is that the three waters idea didn't come out in any out of thin air. That no. was that was being investigated and driven by the National Party before they lost power. And exactly. I know, and I know that's the case because I know the helicopter pilot that was flying John Key and Jerry Brownlee and a number of other people around uh, surveying. Uh, the North Island rivers, et cetera. And he said to me, you cannot believe what was said in that on, over the headsets on that flight. And, you know, you, you can blame the Labour Party for really pushing ahead with the, with the Three Waters and the co-governance and all of those ideas. But, but it, was, it was birthed inside the National Party. And if people are going to vote national to get rid of Labour, then all they're doing is turning a coin over and nationals the heads and labors the tails on that same coin that uh and this constant flip-flopping between red and blue teams and just changing the sh the shirts has hasn't done well for New Zealand for the last 30 or 40 years and it's insanity to think it's going to change anything uh by doing that again in this election and is that your your gut feel as well that you can't contemplate being a member of the Labour Party or the National Party because of that. And so you're looking for someone who's actually saying, I want to put New Zealand first and foremost before any other country or any other ideas. And and that's exactly the point that we if if you know if if we don't have some strengths that's going to pull policy and legislation back into the centre and, and back to re respecting you know, New Zealanders equal in their citizenship regardless of their ancestry or ethnicity, we're, we're doomed. And, and I, I make no bones about that. National have, as you say, an appalling record on this issue and they're dancing on the head of a pin when they say that you know, we say no to co-governance of public services. What does that mean? That is just evasion. That is just absolute evasion. Water is not a public service. It's a natural resource. If they're advocating that we don't support co-governance of public services, but we're okay with natural resources, then, then what's the answer? That water is a natural resource. So therefore, they are being evasive. On the same thing, on one hand, they say that the Māori Health Authority will go under a national government. And, and the, their health spokesperson, who I have a lot of respect for, Dr. Shane Rite, he's gone, you know, he's emailed us and confirmed that he is going to introduce compulsory cultural competency training for every single person working in the health sector. But how what does, does that, that mean? But, but exactly. What does it mean? Like, I was born in Fiji. I'm a, I'm a Fijian. I might not look it. I might, I might look like you know, yeah, average white person, but I can't be called uh, a Kaivalangi in Fiji 
right? Kaivalangi means foreigner, not born here, basically. But yeah. I was born there, so I'm a Kaiviti. So if I go into the hospital system in New Zealand and the Filipino nurses are now treating me and have to be culturally, how are they going to do that? What does this cult, is, are they going to account for all uh, cultures or is it just Maori culture that, that we're being, that, that this awareness is being done for? And, and if that's the case, isn't that more condescension in treating Maori differently when they t- tip up at a hospital, when we're all human beings and our physiology and our makeup and our DNA is all pretty much the same, you know, uh, from a medical point of view. And and this argument that we keep hearing time and time again, this this idea that of systemic racism and constitu- you know, institutional racism and stuff like that, if that actually was true, if that was right, why are not our courts bogged down by claims of you know of um, of racist conduct and breaches of the human rights and stuff like that? If that was actually true, now I have cared for my elders throughout my life in hospital and and Māori and non Māori that I've you know been sat next to in hospital and I have never encountered anything but care and consideration and kindness. Yeah, there's a lack of resourcing, there's frustration through lack of facilities and but to suggest that anybody is deliberately being racially insensitive is just an affront to the poor people that are trying to keep New Zealand healthy. There's always the the exception of these, you know. There's always a rude person out there that's that's just a cantankerous, grumpy yeah. person that that does things. They're an exception. Most Kiwis, yeah. most Kiwis, and, I, and I've been critical of this in the past. Most Kiwis go along to get along. Yeah, right. We 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 don't want to have uh, this antagonism, this rewriting of history, this somehow. Uh, yeah, it, it reminds me constantly now when we see it in in the paper we're told or in in the news we're told about how colonialism was evil and the British haven't done anything and it just reminds me of Monty Python's famous sketch you know what have the Romans, the Romans. ever done for us <laughs> and, my God they were they were social commenters you know 30, 40 years ahead of their time because all of those things that they were mocking back then we're hearing those same arguments you know we we see Rawari Waititi ranting on TikTok about colonial governments and the thieving crown gang that had stolen his this We see it on Facebook. We see it everywhere. There's this undercurrent of nasty racism that's actually coming from, from vocal a vocal minority. Actually, they're the fringe people, and the majority of us aren't fringe at all. We just want to go along to get along and we just get yep. sick of all this nonsense. And and also the narrative that they are purporting is, is an insult to my ancestry. You know, I, I descend from Patswani and Tamati Wakanini. Now, if anybody knows their history and what they did, to suggest that they were somehow, you know, ignorant natives who signed up to something that they had no idea they were signing it is, is an insult. They were... They were businessmen, they were academics, they were peacemakers, they were, you know, that their history is astounding. And they signed the treaty fully informed. They were two of the chiefs that wrote to the Crown prior to the treaty in the 1830s, asking for protection from the Crown against the French. You know, that, that 
this is the history that they are just totally ignoring. And, you know, I'm not suggesting you, you wipe out the good with the bad, but there is some really amazing stuff in our history and some amazing leaders and some incredible stories of, you know, success and triumph and capability. Mm. And the mm. likes of Rawi Waititi, who, who is the type of person that I rail against the most, how dare you? How dare you say stuff about our history like we were, you know, victims of something? Yes, bad stuff happened and we've had a process of redress, but don't continue to rob our young people of their opportunity to succeed and their belief in their own inherent capability by saying that, you know, we're somehow incapable of doing it on our own. But aren't we robbing our children's future with the dumbing down of the education system, the rewriting of history, the promulgation of this colonialism as evil, uh, and then even expanding that now into destroying maths and science with some sort of fanciful idea that um, that Maori science, for want of a better term, uh, supersedes actual science. Yeah, and and that's the and and you see that all all around the world, this idea of academia is being shifted into a um, a woke sort of environment of just virtue signaling and nonsense. You know, we, we've lost the ability to think critically and intelligently and come up with solutions. And and this government has just bought into that narrative to such an extent that it's been accelerated. You know, how can you possibly be tweaking with, you know, nonsense when half of our kids aren't going to school routinely? I mean, it's just bizarre. More than half aren't going to school, you know. When you've got an education minister who triumphs, uh, you know, uh, announces that it's it's amazing, it's wonderful, we had 62% of people attend, our children attend school last term. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And 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 the failure to engage with the people who, you know, New Zealand Initiative um, with Professor Elizabeth Rathak produced an amazing, mm. you know, pro- report on education and, and and real solutions, and and we just don't we don't use the 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 skills and capability and knowledge we've got. We just go off on tangents and reinvent nonsense. I. I... <laughs> I remember Elizabeth Rata well. She was brought on to a show on Maori TV to attack me, and the two of us ended up agreeing <laughs> pretty yeah. much in the thing, much to the uh, astonishment of Willie Jackson, who was sitting there trying to moderate it all. You know, and yeah, and and that's the point that I, I think the biggest difficulty we have is if we can't sit in a room and talk logically and sensibly about what the issues are. What is our common ground? What what are we hoping to achieve? And there isn't a single person or politician, whatever your your political views, that doesn't want better outcomes. So, you know, and and that's where I see the strength of New Zealand first. The ability to, to cross the room to achieve a good outcome is essential and it will be essential coming into government. And as you say, red or blue, you have to have parties that are have the experience and expertise to get things over the line. And I use this quote a bit with the you know Thomas Sowell talks about politi- with politics. Mm. There is um, there's no solutions. There's only trade offs. 
and yeah. and you you have to you have to be good at it. You have to know how to trade off in order to keep mo- moving forward. Um, and, and that's the skill that I think that we need now more than ever. Um, that's the thing that I've been trying to achieve over the last few years, particularly since I had my stroke and the recovery of that. But I was deeply enmeshed and embedded in polarization and party polarization. You know, everyone's still today, you know, I get uh, trolls attacking me on Twitter and Facebook and saying, oh, you're just a National Party spokesperson. And I I learned a lesson from all of that, you know, and I've slowed myself down, but I've learned a lesson that if we foster polarization and segregation and division, then why would we be surprised when polarization and and segregation and division occurs within society. And somehow, and I don't I don't know if there's anybody you can blame on this, but I, I can put it used to be a, a right-left argument. It used to be a Tories versus progressives argument. It used to be, you know, Helen Clark was huge on that. That she was very polarizing. I, yeah. I admire her immensely for her skills, her management skills, her political skills. But I I don't admire the division that she sowed into society back then, you know. And the National Party was just as bad. We had Jim Bolger and people yeah. like that, you know, doing that and Jenny Shipley to a certain um, extent. But I've found that talking to people of all political persuasions, and I'm willing to talk to all people, people you know, across the platform. I'll talk to anybody. Yeah. And moving into media out of politics and into media now, I'm I'm trying to do that. But these people have written this history about me, for example, that says that I'm this awful person that you can't talk to. Uh, and therefore foster that division and that polarization. And that's how I've actually come to spend a fair bit of time talking you know, off the record with people like Shane Jones and Winston Peters and some Labour politicians, actually, and a couple of Greens, because they respect the ideas that people have. They might not agree with them, but they might see a way that those ideas could be moulded, perhaps, or even... Yep, exactly, uh, yep. You know, it, it, I think Winston said to me one day over a whiskey and a cigar, Cam, you, you, can't, you can't change an immovable object. Right, it's easier to get the ball rolling and then change the direction of something you're yep. rolling, and and that was a a really wise thing, and and I picked up on that, and it frustrates the hell out of me we, that we've just lost the ability in New Zealand to, and you were talking about that, have these discussions without getting upset about things and work yeah. out where is the common ground and. I've I've had the same thing with Chris Trotter. You know, he and I agree on more things than we disagree on. Yeah. Right? Yeah, definitely uh, shifting there, yeah. Right? So if Chris Trotter and I agree on more things than we disagree on, and you and I agree on more things than we disagree on, shouldn't we focus on what we agree on, not what yep. we disagree on? Yep. And and that's exactly the point. We have we have lost the ability to find the common ground, but we've also lost the ability to argue and debate. I mean, I grew up in a household, Dad was a journalist. We argued. Dad would argue one side of the story one day and the next side of the story the next day, just in order to have an argument. Loved an argument. But nobody ever went away. You know, I didn't 
you know, find him a, an abominable person because he disagreed with me or he was mm. arguing against me or anything like that. You you have the ability to really, and I remember having a, a debate on an issue once and um, it was with my brother and he finally said, well, I'm glad I had that discussion because now I know I'm not a bigot because I did change my mind. <laughs> and that's that, you know, we have to learn and we have to come from different scenarios. And I, I find it really difficult. Like I've, I've had lots of instances, you know, Māori TV programs quite often would invite me on because they needed someone to be the whipping post, someone to be the, you know, the, the yin to the yang sort of thing. And I'd sit in the green room listening to these representatives of Māori, highly successful individuals talking about how well they were doing. You know, they sold their house and moved to the grammar zone so their kids could go to grammar schools in Auckland and, you know, their property on white, just all of this stuff. But in front of the camera, they would look into the lens and say, it's so hard for Māori. And I thought, why aren't you telling your story? Why aren't you telling young Māori that you can do this too? This is what we've done. Don't look in the camera and tell them that you're predetermined for failure. Tell them that you have the opportunity to succeed. And that's the stuff that get, got me angry was this, you know, how dare you rob them of their potential by, by pushing that narrative in order to make yourselves relevant and successful. Well, it's a narrative that I call it disabling. And, you know, people make assumptions. They look at me and they say, oh, well, you're, you're a European. You know, you've had been brought up with a silver spoon in your mouth and your dad was a, you know, a, you know, a wealthy businessman. But they don't actually understand people's backgrounds. They haven't bothered to talk and learn their backgrounds. If they had, they'd know that my father was brought up in poverty in a state house in a hard hat area of Auckland with a split family. His father had walked out on them, emptied the house completely. He used to work at the butcher shop um, for meat rather than wages so that the family had meat. And he learned the value of in education and hard work by having to do that to get ahead. And even then it got worse. He got kicked out of the house and was brought up by his grandmother and his grandfather, which then formed another part. Right. So this is a story that he could use to say he's had a terrible upbringing. And as a result, um, he's a terrible father. And but he doesn't. He did the best that he could with the resources that he had. You know, even his, his father even wouldn't let him go to the seventh form. He said, "No, you can go out and work." So, so that was the end of him wanting to be a lawyer. He then had yeah. to become an accountant because he was limited by choices other people made. And this is the the see. I see this all the time. We're seeing this with the Kerry Allen situation, where we've got these elite people who have done well for themselves, tut tutting about how terrible it is that Kerry Allen. A wahini Maori is so hard done by, and you know, there she needs some there, there's some pats on the back and a few hugs, and it's okay. But if there's anybody else who had done what she's done, they'd be out there asking for their throat to be cut, and it's just ridiculous to see this. But yeah. apparently, apparently, we're the ones that have got fringe views, you know. Well, we had that recently when um, a certain Labour MP, you know, put out the her, her tweeted her announcement that you know now her father wouldn't have to choose between prescriptions and heating the house, neglecting living, the. He was living was, in her house. 
yeah, and that she's a Saint Cuss educator and he's a knight, and you know, <laughs> just drives was, drives drives a jaguar, uh, and they yeah. have a and they have a swimming pool. You know, yeah, this was not an impoverished person that couldn't afford a five dollar part charge for a prescription. This was a fanciful idea put out there for virtue signaling, and the media all lapped it up until yeah, I came and, along. And there's no- yeah, well, and then there's no consequence to it. There's no, you know, following up on it. I did a um, a submission um, at the Māori Affairs Committee um, called for submissions on the renaming of New Zealand to Aotearoa as a result of the Māori Party petition. That was at the beginning of this year. And, um, of course, I was opposing the distortion of our history and calling New Zealand Aotearoa, but... Um, the, which was the, a, which was a Euro, that, that's the ultimate in cultural <laughs> appropriation. I mean, it's it's so funny. It's not. I mean, it was a name dreamed up by a European writing a book. Yeah, <laughs> and it was it was a poetical sort of. Anyway, the um, I, I was challenged specifically by Rarui Waititi again, and and um, but one of the questions I thought was the most telling because I was just arguing about our history, like this is not. This is not our, you know, this was never the name of uh, New Zealand. It was never, you, you you can choose to call it whatever you like. If you want to do that, you want to change the name, that's fine. But don't say it's because it was the original name of our country. And um, and the first question he asked me was, are you Māori? And I thought, what has that got to do with it? It was nothing to do with the argument. Why would that change my ability to speak or not to speak on the issue? Um, and, 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 you know, Concerningly, they, the select committee still hasn't reported back, so I'm worried about what they're sitting on on that. But this this idea that that if you say it often enough, it becomes truth. So therefore, they've said it often enough, so it is the traditional name of our country, despite there being no historical record of it at all, being the name that Māori used for New Zealand. Um, and then all of the 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 um, bleeding heart liberals, as, as Winston always calls them, come along and nod and wring their hands and go, yes, you know, we've stolen your nation's name. <laughs> it's just it's just such a distortion. But that that's that's the distortion that led us to UNDRIP because I know that John Key signed up to UNDRIP because he had this belief that there were no Indigenous people of New Zealand because... Maori's own oral history says that they were the first colonizers. Mm. Uh, and and I like to say that to Wairu Waititi. I used to, I like to say, well, you're the first colonizers. Your oral history tells us that you came from somewhere else and came to New Zealand. So therefore, you're you aren't indigenous. You're indigenous somewhere else. You're the first colonizers. And yep. that's an it's an inconvenient truth that they don't want to acknowledge because if they do acknowledge that, even though they, they still keep telling us about how fantastic Maori were as navigators, that they sailed here and they uh, arrived here in, in great canoes. And it's a one, it's a wonderful story. It's not, not unlike the story of the Viking explorers going to Iceland and then to Greenland and then to North America, right? It's, it's a similar story. It's fantastic. But it doesn't mean you're indigenous. And 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 it's also become a distraction because what does it matter? You know, it, it, the fact is we have formed a nation and we formed a pretty incredible nation. And we're all from somewhere else. 
yeah, and we've and and that's the Martin Luther King saying. You know, we may have come here all in different ships, but we're in the same boat now. You know, we 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 have to, and that's what I always go back to Sarapuranata. We have to look forward so that we can walk shoulder to shoulder together to a better future. And and we're not doing that. We're so busy checking behind us and looking backwards as if there was something better back there that we don't have now. And, and while we keep doing that and while we refuse to allow ourselves to look forward and, and look for better solutions, um, we're not going to find it. And and it's uh, it was really interesting at the conference, um, Catherine Rich, who's now CEO of Age Concern, gave a really impressive speech about, you know, there's, there's not just Māori suffering in this country and really tragic stories um, of aged care, of children, a whole range of things. But she reminded me of a quote, and she used it, the quote about um, from Winston Churchill, and it was, it's not enough that we do our best. Sometimes we have to do what is required. And, <laughs> yeah. and we, have, we have a government now that they actually think, I'm doing our best and we're doing our best and we're doing our best and and that is not enough. I don't care how much, if you were running a business and you kept going on about how you're doing your best and you were losing money every day, then at that point you go, well, that doesn't mean anything. You can work as hard as you like. If you're still going backwards, if you're still failing to deliver a product and still unable to produce anything, doing your best means nothing and that's what kind of where we're at at the moment. Well, that's been the that's that's really the hallmark of the Ardern Hipkins regime, isn't it? That, mm. you know, they started off with "Let's do this," and but no definition of what this was. I mean, we had a couple of you know uh, flagship policies Kiwi built, you know, and it turned out that Labor couldn't build a house in a room full of Lego. <laughs> and then you know they said we're going to plant a billion trees. Well, have we heard? Where we're at with that, I suspect it's several hundred million short of a billion trees, uh, and you know, light rail to the airport. Well, they haven't even laid a millimeter of track. You know, and they've had a couple of goes and several hundred million dollars of planning, but not even laid a. You know, then we had a. I oh, will build a bridge across the harbour. Well, where's that? You know, yeah. so all of these flagship policies that we all signed up for for let's do this turned into not yet or change the name or let's just not talk about that. And yeah. you know, then we had a year of delivery that delivered nothing. Uh, then we had the year of the vaccine, which has, you know, caused all sorts of divisions in society as well as a result of that. And then when it all got too hard, um, her dibs sloughed off to greener pastures, leaving a complete disaster for Chris Hipkins. And we're seeing that unfold now with the, you know, the train wreck or car crash of, of Kerry Allen's career and uh, Stuart Nash and all the rest of the mess that was left really behind by Ardern. And, and these and, people are begging for another go. Yeah, and, and that's the, you know, how insulting it is to those individuals that are running businesses and, and working 90 hours a week and not, not drawing a salary off their business because they're trying so hard to keep things afloat you know, that that don't haven't had a day off in, you know, three years because they're trying to to keep their businesses afloat. You know, anybody who's run a business, and you know, I've been in that position where you 
you you take you, pay yourself you last. Yeah, you pay yourself last. You you don't you know you don't sleep all of the weekend because you're not sure if you can have enough money for payroll on Monday. You know th- mm. those are the things that they just have no concept of. And and I just I just I I couldn't imagine how confronting that would be to have you know someone. You know, stare down the camera and say, "Oh, look, I'm just, I'm tired." I'm know. doing my best. I'm, I'm doing my best, but I'm tired. <laughs> There's nothing left in the tank. I, I can write a book, but I can't run the country. You know, it's it's rubbish. But I mean, you look at at housing, for example. There's nothing more key for society than having its population well housed. And the and the vast majority of housing in New Zealand is provided by private landlords. It's not by the state. It's by private landlords. So, what does this government do? They vilify and attack landlords. Mm-hmm. They heap costs onto landlords and then express utter surprise that rents have gone sky high and continue to climb. I mean, if you go and load up costs onto landlords, and it, whether it's tax impositions by saying, well, you can't uh, depreciate this anymore or you can't get, have tax deductibility. Well, if you can't, if they can't do that, it, and it doesn't yeah. make business sense to do that. The only place that the landlord has got to make it work for them financially is to increase rents. Mm-hmm. If you say, right, we're going to pass a healthy homes, it's an admirable policy. It really is. You know, insulation, it's all good. But if you don't marry that up with education, that you still need to open your windows, you still need to do these things. You still, and at the same time, you've got a cost of living crisis, which is putting power prices up. Uh, you've got all these you know, tens of thousands of dollars for landlords to put all the heating in. They're going to recover that from the only place they can, which is the tenants. Yeah. And then that exacerbates the cost of living. And these, these lunatics that are in charge, you know, Grant Robertson, I don't think he would know the left from the right of a profit and loss statement. They're sitting there absolutely baffled that that these things have happened. Yep. And, you know, we need, we need to actually say, look, enough, right? You're too stupid to be in charge. Go away and go away for, I don't know, a generation. That'd be nice. Go away and learn how the, how an economy actually works. And, and, and have some respect for the people on which we rely on to keep this country going. You know, when when you're telling you know anybody who's got a bit of money or built up some assets, you know you're the bad guy, and and you're you're the reason why they're poor. I mean, what an appalling message to send to to divide a nation. Like it's just tragic, and and those are the the concerns I have about you know if if you know the the biggest thing about the housing housing shortage was the cost of land was a massive issue. Everyone knew that you need to release land. Everyone knew you need to make resource management easier, mm. simpler, quicker. And so what do we do? What, what have we created? A co-governance quagmire that is just unworkable. And ev- no matter how you look at it, nobody could make it work. But they're pushing ahead. And it's just... You know, and, and and on every aspect that they've touched, it's been like the opposite of the Midas touch. It's just turned everything to dead weight stone, unable to produce anything. And and I just, it's 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 hard not to go. 
I can't claim to be an expert and I can't claim to be knowledgeable. But the one thing that, you know, we need is practical people that are prepared to dig around and find the answers and not accept because somebody, some bureaucrat came in and told me this is the situation. If you don't have the capability and now to get to the truth and find out what the heck's going on and find the answers and talk to the right people, um, you know, we're, we're never going to fix anything. Yeah. And I, I remember in the police association, we always used to joke about the fact that the first term police minister was great because they wanted to do stuff because they could blame everything wrong on the second, you know, the, the previous government. Yeah. The second term minister wanted plausible deniability, so didn't really want to know anything, just, mm. you know, but don't get me in trouble. And the third term was just tell me nothing, like just I don't want to know anything. Don't, you know. The Sergeant Schultz I, minister. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're, the Labour has accelerated. They're, they're taking the third term um, approach in the second term and they're just distancing themselves from everything. I, I think they're just inept. Mm. And we've got an ineptocracy uh, of stupid people doing stupid things. And we need to say enough. And, you know, we need to actually literally change. When I say change the government, I mean, I don't mean just swap teams. Yeah. I mean, we, we need to have people that are saying, no, that's a dumb idea. No. You know, everyone mocks Winston for being a handbrake. <laughs> but, but you know, every car has one. All right, every car has a handbrake. Why and, is and that? that? That's the, the testament, too, is that, that when you bring more and more bureaucrats into a struggling business, you know, if you're running a business and it's not going well, you you streamline. You get rid of all of the surplus, you know, the marketing people and the HR consultants and the definitely you, get rid of HR. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and you streamline, you you work out, you know, the receptionist gets sacked. You, you know, you work through so that you can see every aspect of your business. Yeah. And and know exactly what it's going on. And you don't trust that somebody told me they did something. You actually make sure they did it. Yeah. And not. And, and that's no, and, and I can't see there's any difference whether you're running a country, a household, or a business. You have to know, you know, you have to directly know and be, you know, be brave enough to answer the right, ask the right questions. And that's what I think, I, you know, Winston has the credentials where he has always challenged the, the, the topics and, and sought the right answers and taken costs to do it. And, and I think that's the that that's what desperately what we need. Well, I've talked to you for about an hour now, and the key theme that I'm picking up through all of this for you is that you want to bring accountability back to government. Yeah, I really do. And I, you know, that's the one thing. You know, when you leave the police, you don't know, you don't think you know anything. You know, you just I'm like I'm, I'm I've got no university qualifications. I've not. I was a you know a South Auckland cop. I became a detective. I became a detective sergeant. And what I found after going into the private sector and working was that one skill you have is that you have the ability to find answers, to 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 challenge people, um, get the truth out of people. Yeah, and and to understand people and and know where where they're coming from. And and I think desperately we need to to cut through a whole lot of the smoke screens and mirrors and 
and I don't think anybody does it better than New Zealand First, really. Well, I look forward to seeing you uh, on the front bench of New Zealand First and holding everybody's feet to the fire when you're in there. <laughs> Thanks very much, Cameron. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on The Crunch with me this afternoon. And um, I wish you all the best for the election campaign. Thanks very much. Wow, what a bright and refreshing candidate Casey is. She's driven to improve the outcomes of all Kiwis and shared that with us. And she believes her best chance of doing that lies with New Zealand first. And she shared also that she has an enormous respect for Winston Peters. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.